Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Welcome, everybody. My name is Erica Quach. I am a program officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Thank you all for taking the time to join us today for what I am sure is going to be an illuminating conversation on anti-Asian racism in the United States. I am delighted to introduce Jerry Yang, our moderator for this evening's program. As one of the most influential entrepreneurs in the tech world, he has made an enormous contribution to the success and representation of Asian Americans in the United States. Jerry is not only a co-founder and former CEO of Yahoo, he is also a board member of the National Committee. He currently works with and invests in um, technology entrepreneurs through AME Cloud Ventures, his innovation investment firm. I feel honored to have had the opportunity to work with everybody on this panel from its inception, as each one of them has served as a role model in my life. So with that, I will turn it over to Jerry to introduce three of our incredible speakers for this program. I hope you all enjoy. Thank you, Erica, and welcome, everybody. Uh, before I introduce our three speakers, um, I just want to give you a quick rundown how we're trying to do the next um, hour and 15 minutes. Uh, we'll start with a conversation with each one of our panelists, uh, panelists and experts, uh, roughly a five-minute opening remark from each of their experiences, insights to the current state of um, anti-Asian racism, which uh, we hope to dive into here today. Uh, then we'll do a bit of a moderated discussion about various issues that include generational divide and the model minority myth, the plan to leave the last 20 minutes to um, address both pre-submitted and live questions from the audience. Uh, there's a Q&A button um, that you may submit li live, the Q&A box on the bottom of your screen. Um, and uh, please know that the chat function has been disabled for this webinar. Uh, before I begin, I, I just wanted it to uh, provide a little bit of context for my um, experience in this topic. And um, uh, obviously, um, we have continued to see uh, tensions with China rise over the last 24 months. Um, but more than that, I, I think in May, there was a PBS um, documentary about Asian Americans. Um, and I was part of that documentary. I, I didn't realize how um, I would be affected by watching the documentary myself. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's about five hours um, that documents Asian experiences in America. And after watching that, it became clear to me that um, as immigrants such as myself or many people who are you know, first, second, third, even fourth generations that have been here in America for a long time, um, where we came from and where our cultural and ethnic identification that may, may attach to isn't the point. It is part of who we belong, it's part of our, our identity. But what the documentary showed is um, it doesn't matter if you're a railroad worker from China in the 1850s, it uh, doesn't matter if you are South Indians that came to the southern part of the United States uh, or the Japanese or the Koreans, um, uh, the Vietnamese and, and, and Filipinos and the farm workers. Um, 
the United States over its history has systematically looked at Asians um, in, in a sense when convenient as something foreign and, um, and the racism against Asians as a whole uh, spans over uh, you know, literally centuries. And so um, the theme for me at least that my takeaway has been you know, whenever there is a um, contentious relationship with any part of Asia from the United States perspective, uh, pick your Asian country, um, the racism inside the United States goes up against Asians. So we are at such a moment in my belief, and I think um, this is why I think this topic is relevant, and this is why we have several hundred of you out there uh, wanting to contribute and talk about this. There's a lot to talk about. Let me briefly, um, talk uh, to you about our panelists. Uh, I would just want to say all four of us are Asian, but um, these are experts in their fields. But also I would say that um, uh, many non-Asians share uh, the sentiment that we will talk about here today. This is not just an Asian issue. Um, and I'm sure anecdotally, many of our friends who are uh, non-Asians will, um, uh, will, will, will agree with the, the growing sense of alarm and normalization of racist speech that is happening in America. Um, I will not read all of the panelists' bios in full. You may find them on the sign-up page for the event already, um, but I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Erica Lee. She is the Director of Immigration History Research Center at the University of Minnesota and the author of, most recently, America for Americans, a history of xenophobia in the United States and the making of Asian America. Two pretty uh, Timely titles, and, and uh, uh, I've heard Erica talk about um, the context, and I'm hoping she will give us uh, tremendous context. The second panelist is Ms. Anla Cheng, CEO and co-founder, a founder of Sub China, uh, and a member of the National Committee. And our third panelist is Ms. Nancy Yao Masbach, president of the Museum of Chinese in America, and also a member of the National Committee. And with that, may I ask um, Erica to please give your opening remarks. Sure, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, everyone, for joining us. Thank you to all of the organizers. Thank you, Jerry, for that really interesting um, introduction. I'm personally very grateful that you mentioned the PBS Asian American documentary. I was an advisor on the project, and I think that um, people are still watching it and are still moved at the stories that were shared. So, you know, we come to, to all of you today in a year that has beat so many years, um, the, uh, the pandemic, the uh, racial unrest. Uh, I am joining you from Minneapolis um, where just blocks from my home, businesses remain boarded up, uh, protests continue. Uh, this has been a challenging time. And of course, the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes. I think one of the most important things that I'd like to have us think about is in this context, how anti-Asian xenophobia is just one example of how the pandemic is disproportionately impacting poor African-American, Latinx, Asian-American, and indigenous communities, groups that were already vulnerable to economic inequality, health disparities, and social exclusion. 
And then the second message is about how, of course, I'm the historian here. Um, so the way that I am interpreting, seeing what's happening today, of course, has long historical roots. It is certainly, as Jerry mentioned, in relationship to what is happening on a global scale in terms of the rising tensions of, uh, between the US and China, but also the pandemic has revived longstanding racist and anti-immigration narratives. Uh, it's part of the US's long history of xenophobia, the irrational fear and hatred of, of immigrants. And in particular, disease and pandemics have always played a really important role in shaping racism and leading to, to hate crimes. When I am in the classroom and I teach my students about the ways in which immigration has always been debated, I often use cartoons, um, illustrations from the past, and it's very striking to see how many times migration has been portrayed as, as an invasion, as a, an invasion of, of parasites coming into the United States like a plague um, threatening uh, the US. And this stigmatization has often risen during times of other public health crises. So Germans were scapegoated for bringing in yellow fever. It was actually called German flu in the 1790s. The Irish were blamed for spreading cholera. Italians were blamed for uh, a polio outbreak. Jews were the targets during an 1892 typhoid epidemic. But there is something very particular about China, Chinese people, the Chinese culture, Chinese Americans that have always been racialized as places of, of filth, uh, of contagion, of bringing disease into the United States. We know that San Francisco Chinatown was described as a plague spot uh, during the bubonic plague epidemic in 1900. Chinese residents in San Francisco found themselves barricaded overnight um, when city public officials decided to quarantine them uh, without any notice um, in 1900. There's also a very long-standing um, belief that the strange eating habits of Chinese people uh, are seen as evidence of sickliness and disease. So Chinese were always blamed for eating things like rats and mice and bats. Uh, there's a very famous um, advertising campaign in the 1900s that likened Chinese immigrants to, um, to being uh, rat poison. They ate rats and thus you should buy this rat poison because it was also effective on getting rid of rats. These ideas led to public health policies. Um, it led to racist immigration policies like the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, like other uh, immigration laws affecting Southern and Eastern Europeans, like the massive deportation of Mexicans and Mexican Americans during the Great Depression. And what we're seeing today, I think has to be uh, contextualized and understood within a much larger backlash of immigration that began in the 1980s and 1990s, but certainly has reached new proportions uh, in recent years. So we have to think about this, this larger context, not just about what's happening within 
the Chinese American and Asian American community, but also in relationship to, um, to racial unrest, racial inequality, and the international tensions that seem to be driving uh, election year politics right now. It's important to, to see these connections because I think it's very common that we might think that these problems will go away with simply just voting someone new into the White House or once the pandemic is over. But as a historian, I've seen these patterns repeat, evolve, and manifest themselves in deeply embedded ways um, that cause me great concern. So thank you. I look forward to the rest of the conversation. Thank you very much, Erica. Um, a lot there to unbundle, and I'm sure we'll get into it. Uh, Anlat, may I ask you to make your opening remarks? Okay, thank you. I'm delighted to be here today and uh, really think this is such an important topic that uh, we can convene to discuss, share our personal experiences and really decide what can we do, if at all, if anything at all. So, you know, I wanted to thank uh, uh, Erica for speaking about the overall uh, issue and putting into historical context and to address uh, uh, how we as Asians are being uh, treated uh, poorly in the United States. So I'm not a historian and uh, I, I don't have a, a specialty in immigration or racism, but I, I have experienced, uh, I was asked to talk about my personal experiences and anecdotes. So I was uh, raised in Japan, although I am Chinese, and uh, I just want to bring us back to 1980s where I was uh, head of an investment group at Prudential Beige uh, on the Japanese institutional desk. At that time, I was asked to bring my entire team from Japan and to go to uh, Detroit, where Nissan and Honda had their plants. And it is so reminiscent of what's going on today, because at that time, uh, 250,000 people, Americans, white Americans, were put out of work because of Nissan and Honda. And uh, we were on an analyst trip. So I had I had bring my analyst, gone to the Nissan and Honda uh, plants, and all of a sudden we had rocks and stones hurled at us. And we took cover uh, in a bar. But the first thing I said, and I was so ashamed, was to, to tell the people who were throwing rocks at us, my first initial reaction was to say that, but I'm not Japanese, I'm Chinese. And of course, as soon as I said it, I realized, what a, a terrible thing to say. First of all, I alienated my colleagues that I've known for years. And secondly, I realized immediately this was not only a Japanese issue. It was really an Asian issue. And from a white person's standpoint, whether we're Chinese, Korean, Japan, uh, Japanese, or even Southeast Asian, it is something that affects all Asians. So I realized, too, that at that time, when I look back at that time, you know, I have to put it into context. Japan at that time was right at the top. Uh, Sony's Akio Morita wrote a book that said the Japan that can say no. The emperor's palace, the value of it was more than the entire California's real estate put together. Paintings, the most expensive paintings were bought by the Japanese. And uh, sushi and Japanese restaurants were 
gold leaf was on sushi. And that was the peak of Japan. Since then, I have to say the market's never gone back to that period. But the Americans were jealous and very upset by Japan's success. And I see the parallels so much to what we're going through now. The rise of China has been a very difficult issue for Americans, particularly the Trump administration. And they have repeated these uh, what they think are truths, but lies over and over again and repeat it to such an extent that if you look at the recent Pew report, Pew research report that came out last week, over 76% of Americans view China in a negative light. You know, this was very sad for me, especially because I've dedicated my life to deepen the understanding of China for Western audiences and uh, truly felt very saddened by that uh, statistic. I just want to read some statistics that my intern uh, through Kaiser had put together. It's six pages, so I won't go through it. But over the last several months, there have been over 2,000 anti-Asian discrimination doc documented across the United States, of which roughly 10% were all physical assaults. And I just want to point out how prevalent it is, particularly in the New York area. My personal assistant, who is Malaysian Chinese, and her partner were both trampled to the ground. And her revenge was that she got to be on the front page of the Daily Post, and they did catch the uh, assailant uh, two months later. But this is quite prevalent here. Um, uh, the other thing that I was also shocked to see that in Rock, Rockville, Maryland, most gun buyers in March were Chinese Americans. This is how afraid uh, Americans, uh, Chinese Americans are. I have to move on very quickly because I only have like 40 seconds. But what I'd, I hope we can achieve uh, is that we can find some call to action. And we at SubChina are putting together a Chinese American scientist video because out of the 100,000 uh, Chinese American scientists, a couple thousand are affected. A thousand of them have already been forced to quit their jobs, have gone back to China because they cannot find jobs here. And so we would like to put together a do's and don'ts to advise Chinese American scientists. But it's not only scientists, it's the 350,000 students who have been called spies. And I'm hoping that we do not uh, take all this lightly and, and be the, the minority, the model minority, and to, to, take, uh, to take action this time. And I want to say that, you know, up till recently, we've been talking about women empowerment. We've been talking about LGBTQ lives matter and black lives matter. I'd love to see a yellow lives matter uh, come to action. So I'll stop there, although my speech was absolutely much longer, but I realize I've gone over time. Sorry, Jerry. <laughs> Not at all. Really uh, poignant examples. And we're all reminded of Vincent Chen in Detroit, uh, a Chinese right. <laughs> person mistaken being Japanese and murdered. Um, in the 80s. So, um, Nancy, may I ask you for your opening remarks? Great. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you, Jerry, for your leadership, um, Erica, for your scholarship, and Anla, uh, just for your expertise and, and, and philanthropy and all these areas that matter so much to all of us. Um, I am very nervous because my professor from college, the wonderful Professor Xiao Huang Ying, has called in, and uh, he is really the foremost expert in my mind on some of the issues around the expanding role of Chinese Americans in U.S.-China relations and came out with a seminal book in 2000 on that. So, Professor Ying, thank you. Um, but, you know, colleagues and friends, I think we're in a turning point moment. And um, at the Museum of Chinese in America, we have this interesting intersection where we look at U.S.-China because it's inextricably linked with Chinese America. 
and Chinese in America, and therefore, because so much of um, America wants to cast Chinese and therefore Asians into a homogenous group, that we really struggle with that storyline. And I think that turning point is also, um, in the words of Elizabeth Economy in her more, most recent book, The Third Revolution, we're really looking at a changing um, stature in China, um, where it was low foreign policy, and now it's really trying to reassert its, its power in the world. Um, so I'd like to suggest really three areas where we might consider for this conversation around this, around this topic and around the trickiness around anti-Asian racism. And the three areas I want to just point out is one, nomenclature. Um, and I'll go into that. And two, just the different waves of immigration and how legislation has really affected our understanding of ourselves. Um, and also how other people perceive um, Asians in this country. And then lastly, again, just touching lastly on the U.S.-China relationship and how much it's changing and how much the role of people of Chinese ancestry um, can actually have an impact as we become more learned about the topic of U.S.-China relations. So I'll start with nomenclature. You know, Washington Post, Andrew Yang, presidential candidate, puts out a piece, very controversial for Asian Americans. Um, and he, it, it, he kind of interchangeably uses Asian and Asian American, right? So let's take a look at Africans and African Americans. We would not necessarily call someone in this country African if they were in here for three, if they were in this country for three generations. But for some reason, this issue of being perpetually foreign still pervades because of the way we look and for some reason, some of the issues that Erica has raised. I think that nomenclature is really tricky. And I think in some ways we need to own that nomenclature. We should all come on the same page and say, are we Chinese Americans? Until people can understand that we are 100% American and 100% our ancestry, how do we get to that place? Because there is an evolution in that space. But I think that nomenclature is really tricky and we make it tricky upon ourselves. Um, and I think Andrew Yang also has created that showing our Americanness is really controversial conversation because isn't America made up of all of our backgrounds and ancestries. Um, so that's nomenclature one. The second is the ways of immigration. As Jarika mentioned, there's been so much legislation against Asians in this country, against Chinese people of Chinese ancestry, so much so that their citizenship was revoked in the early part of the 19th century. And so much so that we had the laborers coming in the 19th century, and yet we saw scholars coming in after 1943 when the Exclusion Act was partially repealed. So we have these groups that have created factions within our own communities where it's like, okay, there's a highbrow, there's a lowbrow. And I think those tensions really need to be resolved so that Asians in this country can actually come together and understand. And that's really based on educating ourselves. And I just remind everyone of Jay Caspi and Kang in 2017, August, just three years ago, wrote an amazing piece which really questioned our understanding of who we are. And it was that case about the fraternity hazing death, um, Michael Dung, the saddest story I've read in a number of years. And the story wasn't about how the hazing led to his death. It, the story was about the painful search for Asian American identity. And I think we just need to pause here and understand what are those questions around that? Why is it faction? Why is it? And a, not, a lot of it is not because of things that we do to ourselves, but because of legislation and the history in this country. Lastly, just ending up, U.S.-China relations, we are at that turning point. Things are different. International students from China is still the largest population. Who knows what it's going to look like in the 1920 report that IIE shout out um, to, it's, it's going to list, but we had 380,000 students in this country studying as international students in 2018-19. That is fueling our, our, our universities, it's fueling the economy in so many different ways, and transnational Chinese. 
you know, we used to be like, okay, I'm a first generation American. Okay, I'm an American born Chinese. Now a lot of the Chinese are coming to this country are transnational. You know, they have both a, a, a foot in Marin County, California, and they have a foot in Beijing, right? So there's, there's this transnational, so it's very different. And some even refer to themselves as expats. So I think that that's a real changing dynamic that's not similar to what we've experienced in the past. And of course, the last point is the wealth variable. We have to consider 10 years of double digit growth in China and the wealth that's come out of that double digit growth. And how has that impacted all the different aspects of the US economy, US China relations, anti Asian racism, anti Chinese American racism? A lot of cases at USC, as we all recall, there is so much wealth racism. There's wealthism against Asian Americans who have wealth. And that's all these issues that we have just not tackled. And I'm hoping that this call can do just that. Thank you, um, Nancy. That was very, very uh, important and helps us segue into discussing some of the topics we'll do. Um, I would just add that um, uh, the, the, the goal for, for our discussion today is um, uh, probably at this point is still in that awareness um, and uh, educational phase, making sure that we're all talking on the same page as much as we can and understanding where we came from. Um, but the important thing is obviously to continue this dialogue and, and make sure where it's going. And so hopefully by the end of this conversation through Q&A and otherwise, uh, the National Committee will offer us, all of us, those of us who are, are, who are speaking, but also those many of you who are uh, watching this to um, keep this conversation alive and uh, we'll provide resources and links so that as, as this goes forward, um, especially we want to get to uh, kinds of things that we can do um, to provide um, you know, how, how do we act? Uh, how do we how do we do things to take action um, and, and move forward? Now I'd like to spend the next uh, half an hour or so um, and, and get into a discussion with our, our panelists um, uh, on three topics. And, and the three topics that we have chosen uh, are number one, generational divide. Um, number two, East Asian and the model minority. And number three, uh, you know, sort of immigration and some of the things that uh, Nancy and Eric have already alluded to. Um, maybe I'll I'll um, ask the panelists to see. Maybe maybe Erica, you could talk about a little bit about um, uh, the first question about generational divide. Um, you know, for me, one of the key reasons now, um, it, it, and as all of you eloquently said, that you know, despite hundreds of years of being in this country of various forms. Um, uh, the, the way we look, Asians look, tends to be the, the source of xenophobia. Um, and as I think about this, the, the, uh, where we came from part is still relevant and, and, and for some of us very much intact even we're immigrants. But when I look at, you know, our children, my kids or, or, or their kids' kids or, or people who have been here and um, uh, uh, whether they married Asians or not for generations, um, their kids still may look Asian, but I, I can't imagine some of those kids living anywhere else. Um, they're, they're, they're maybe a thousand percent American. So um, uh, we've also seen a lot more activism and difference between the older generation, more immigrant flavored um, Asian Americans versus the younger generation, people who are born here and um, understand America uh, from, from, the, from the base up. So Erica, the question and to all of you uh, actually is how do we facilitate 
conversations about race, racism at home and in our communities. And there's a very broad question, so you guys can take it whichever way. Uh, but, but a lot of it is about this generational divide. Erica? Yeah, you know, um, so one of the things that I think all of our uh, opening comments has revealed is how diverse just within the Chinese American community we are, right? So not just in terms of generation, but that is important, but also which China, <laughs> which China we all came from. Um, my family's been in this country for six generations. Um, and when I look at this question about difficult conversations about race and racism at home, this point that you just raised, Jerry, about how those of us who have been born here, who have long roots here, may consider ourselves American, but but because American is still coded as white, it's still seen as white, um, we are not going to be um, recognized as that. And so that, that very real disconnect, I think, is one way um, to open up a conversation about race and, and racism. I also think, no surprise, you know, that um, I really feel it's so important for Asian American communities to know their history. This is not taught in schools. So unlike, you know, we've gotten so much better at teaching women's history, teaching African American history, but Asian American history, at most, they're probably going to learn a little bit about the Transcontinental Railroad. Nancy knows this, you know, the Exclusion Act maybe, and maybe incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, all extremely important topics, but there's so much more. And uh, it, it's especially important to understand how Chinese Americans, Asian Americans have been victims of the same racial policies and racism and racial hierarchy that African, African Americans have been targeted by, American Indians, etc. At the same time, there are differences. There are ways in which we have benefited um, in, in, in comparison to, to um, historic and generational inequality for, for other groups. So I think that it's always helpful to start with uh, one's personal experiences. And, and if there's a silver lining to what's happening today is that there are more and more Chinese Americans and Asian Americans talking about anti-Asian racism. I have heard many people um, express something like, I didn't know that this could happen to me. And now I realize it. So this, this general wokeness that is happening across communities is a good thing. Um, I guess I would just stress that, again, connections to what else is happening to other communities of color, um, connections to how this is a long history connections to how there have been generations, including that very first immigrant generation in the 1850s who have challenged racism and inequality and how we continue to stand on their shoulders is a source of inspiration, I hope, that, um, that families can, can draw on. Thank you. Um, Nancy, maybe I can ask you to talk a little about the community aspect or, or uh, in talking to our kids in schools, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, you know, I'm 
I was so amazed with Julian Edelman and Deshaun Jackson. Well, Julian Edelman in particular, when he said, listen, you know, after Sean Jackson had sort of, Deshaun Jackson made a little bit of an anti-Semitism comment. And he's like, let's go to the museum um, in the Holocaust Museum in DC. And then we're gonna go to the African-American history. And then we're gonna grab some burgers. And then we're gonna, you know, talk this out. And of course, this is not promotional, but it kind of is. It's really hard to have these conversations, right? Um, it's in anything that has this fragmentation of thought uh, where people are still sort of developing their own response. There is not a refined moment. You need to meet people where they are and we need to be listeners. We need to be 100% listeners at this point and we need to grab burgers and have that conversation. And I think it really does help to go to institutions that are presenting history in the best way that they can. So visiting a museum to sort of spark that with your parents or with your grandparents and having that say like, what's your reaction? And not schooling people is like the most important aspect of trying to get there. And I think the education part um, is so important. It, you know. At, at MOCA, the entire staff feels so urgent. We feel this urgency because the history is incomplete. The American narrative, we will say it all day long, all night long, the American narrative is incomplete. And when we see statues coming down, that is evidence of that, that, that incompleteness. And I think what we need to do is make sure that we also know this history so that we can share that history, hopefully in the most objective manner as possible. But the K through 12, um, we need more institutions um, like, you know, in Little Tokyo, the Japan American National Museum, like the Museum of Chinese America, like Chinese Historical Society, institutions that are helping to write those resources because the teachers that come into our museum and say, you know what, we don't teach this in our classroom and we have to complement and supplement what we don't know. And that's why we visit the museum. That is always the response. And I think we need to look for those resources. We put some up here that we have on just heroes. And I'll leave you with this, um, um, probably have already spoken, but ask yourself this if you're Asian American or if you're not Asian American, um, can you name one hero besides Jerry Yang <laughs> of, of Asian ancestry, you know, given 200 years of, you know, Eric Lee's family being here, can you name a hero that is in the common vernacular in this country. And, and I'm curious to hear what you would say. Well, I certainly been called a lot of things. Hero is not one of them. Uh, <laughs> Anla, I know you've been done so much in the educational uh, realm with your media. Um, and, and I'd like to actually talk about the media piece because obviously part of uh, turning the corner and be, be more active and better organized is the media. But Maybe you could talk about your experience and advice on uh, the generational divide. Sure. I think, um, you know, I have a different message to the teachers, a different message to uh, students and also to the parents. And, and to teachers, I think you need to take time to find resource material that you could teach to students because it is all about education and awareness. And I, I agree with both uh, Erica and Nancy that I don't think the average American nor the Chinese American student understands the Exclusion Act included 61 years of Chinese being banned in the United States and how we want to do everything to avoid a repeat of that again. We also want to, we want to avoid having a war. Uh, this is, a, it's a much bigger topic, but what we need to do is to be able to articulate so that if, if 
your child is abused or if we are abused either physically or verbally we are prepared to respond in a proactive way what do we say and i think we have to all have a role play whether it's at home or at school and be prepared i'm part of an organization called facing history in ourselves it's a nonprofit organization that teaches teachers uh, who end up teaching students there are about three million of them how to stand up and not be a bystander but to become an upstander uh, and they take other uh, topics of uh, racism whether it's holocaust or chechnya rwanda south africa and i, I was uh, up till recently the chair of the china project talking just about this how do we stand up and teach our fellow people uh, if and when we are abused how do we stand up and not become part of them so these are very important conversations that we could have and you know I welcome anybody who is interested in learning this topic uh, I would be able to I would be happy to forward facing history's contact to you I think a lot of the parents uh, have understand racism very well because if whether it's second or third or fourth generation we've seen racism over and over again but I think the main difference is that the current generation uh, it can be much more vocal than the past generations where the Chinese you know we started out with the coolies and then become be obedient be quiet don't stand out that was sort of the norm and even within China as you know the Chinese you know have are just getting over the age of humiliation and they've become strong educated uh, very very successful financially and intellectually and now quite nationalistic and recently they're being uh, criticized for being like wolf warriors but they themselves do not want to be abused anymore and they will push back so when you see Trump saying something tit for tat they will come right back but we Chinese Americans are still of slightly past generation we are educated we are intelligent not all of us but majority of, of us are and we're quite successful but and we're proud to watch our fellow Chinese in China so successful but we don't have that wolf warrior mentality yet we're still quiet and we are not collectively activist and I think it's time that we all try to mobilize and try to put our ideas and thoughts together that we don't sit back and listen to all this terrible rhetoric that uh, labels us as being what Erica said dirty bad uh, etc so I'm hoping that this conversation will lead us to the next level and that is that we can mobilize and take action I think one last thing I want to say is that we at SubChina, we've done quite a few podcasts, we've done stories and articles, and I've, I've put together the resources and I've passed it on to the National Committee people, which they will share with you as resources. If you have any stories or articles or people that you would like to be interviewed or written about, please let us know. Yeah, thank you, Alma. Um, I think this segues nicely into our next um, topic, which I think gets into uh also some of the audience questions um this 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 idea of a model minority um uh obviously um the uh the perception or the um for for a couple decades has been that um the asians uh in america work hard um culturally there's a lot of emphasis on education and using that to uh, uh sort of jump through the socioeconomic um, strata and um, and that um, uh, we're, you know, Asian Americans are held up as 
the um, the model that others, uh, if that is even a word, uh, should should uh, should strive to be, and um, uh, and and I think in many ways that is just not true even within the Asian American community. There are socio not socioeconomically many that are disadvantaged um, that have been forgotten. Uh, we are in, in the Bay Area here. We have a community foundation that um, look at you know human trafficking, look at um, gangs, look at um, uh, you know, sort of lack, lack of education, lack of um, health care um, for the most downtrodden Asian Americans. And so that's one element. And then the second element has been, uh, you know, there's this uh, racial wedge between Asian Americans and, um, uh, for example, the Black community, as, um, as it was described in the LA riots. But uh, even, even, even more recently, there's tension between um, uh, Black Americans and and African-Americans and Asian-Americans. So I wonder, um, maybe there's a whole thing to unbundle there about the minor minority. And, and uh, Erica, uh, you, you can talk about this in so many different ways, but maybe give us your thoughts about, um, and there's actually a live question about uh, Prop 16 here in California, which I assume, I think it's about affirmative action, which is a huge topic. Uh, in itself. So uh, maybe you can give us some context history or how to, how to think about um, all this mi model minority stuff. Sure. Uh, well, you know, one way to think about the model minority um, myth is, is also to think about how we think of good, good immigrants and bad immigrants. So, you know, in the U.S., we are based on an idea of racial hierarchy our laws have always identified certain groups as the most fit to be citizens and others who are unfit to be citizens. So again, we, these are, we have really deep roots in, in divide and conquer. The model minority myth has its roots first in World War II, when all of a sudden Chinese Americans became our friends, the US's friends, and the Japs, Japanese Americans were our enemies. Um, after the war, other groups got folded into the good Asian Americans, including Japanese Americans who are now uh, learned their lesson and were safely assimilated. And it became more of an Asian, white, black issue. So 1950s, 1960s, there are calls by African Americans to end systemic racism, not only for equal rights, but to go a little bit further and talk about more radical change and um, the you know, abolition of certain systems. Conservative writers, um, politicians started saying, is there really a problem with systemic inequality? Let's look at the Asians. We know that we treated the Asians horribly. They were unequal, they were discriminated against, but yet they seem to have thrived. They seem to have pulled their so themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, so if they could do it, maybe there really isn't anything to this systemic inequality or racism. And uh, this is something that the media and um, academics and, and lawmakers really, and Asian Americans really kind of embraced um, up to this day. Jerry already mentioned the problems with the model minority myth, how it lumps all Asians together when we know that there are many groups who have come with fewer resources, little education, and who have 
been swept up in a pattern of, of racism and inequality in the United States. And we also know how divisive it can be, um, how for, for, for white Americans, they may think, and others, they may think that Asian Americans cannot be victims of racial discrimination because they're doing quote unquote so well, and how some Asian Americans also can buy into this idea that they are more white, like honorary whites, um, versus more black and victims of, of discrimination. So it, it is quite um, detrimental when we're trying to think about ways of cross-racial alliances and solidarity, and it's simply just not true. Anla or, or Nancy, would you guys have any comments about um, the model minority, both as a myth and, and what kind of opportunities or problems it presents to our, our collective communities? I think I just touched upon it in my last comment, and that is that uh, there seems to be a gap between how China is evolving as a country, uh, which is speaking up pushing back and now even being called a bully versus the Chinese Americans here, we continue to be uh, quiet uh, and uh, reticent. And I think it's high time that we did speak up because uh, we, we have been great citizens, but I think we are also, uh, especially the younger ones, the uh, Gen Z, are much more activist oriented. And I think the schooling that I'm seeing, at least on the East Coast, uh, in their school, they're very inclusive to make sure that they include LGBTQ that I mentioned earlier, uh, women empowerment and racism. These are all issues that they embrace in school. And so I think that that type of thinking has to is, is resonating amongst the young people. And it's high time that we try to uh, take some of what they've learned in school to be activists and to stand up for, I, I would love to call it Yellow Lives Matter or Asian Lives Matter. And Jerry, just adding to that, you know, the modern minority myth is, is a positive stereotype. Um, stereotypes, no matter what form they come in, are not okay because they generalize a population of people and that's just not the way an individual can function in society if they're under a generalized stereotype. So I find it to be very, very dangerous. And, you know, one thing that I love, one of the stories I love that we feature in the museum is how um, the civil rights movement really led to the disbandment of the, uh, you know, the um, immigration and it created the Immigration National Nationality Act in 1965. That was a result and the quota expanding to 20,000 individuals from any one country and where we saw a lot of our, you know, Hong Kong American, Taiwanese Americans come through in the late 60s, 70s. That's all an out, out of the civil rights movement. I am indebted to the civil rights movement and to black people who fought for the ability for my parents to come here. And this all goes back to education, right? But no one really connects that. And that's why we need institutions to do that. And, and I, you know, I totally, um, I, I think I got to reference Erica, Ali Wong, Jungle Asians versus Fancy Asians. Um, but I, I don't know if that was a, but, but I think there are people like Ali Wong, there are people like Hassan Minaj who are like mixing it up for us. And we need more people out there saying, do you know this happened? And do it in a way that's accessible. You know, museums always think about accessibility. We need to make this whole conversation, this whole dialogue, intergenerational, whichever way, we need to make it accessible. And we need to make it entertaining at this point. We need to fast track this because or else, 
you know, six generations of Erica's family are always going to be seen as foreigners. And that's not okay. Um, I would love to have one of you guys talk about affirmative action. Erica, is there something you can add to the conversation? We're getting a lot of questions about, you know, the Asian Americans, uh, you know, have benefited uh, from the equal opportunity structure in, in California, for example. Um, but, you know, obviously people also consider affirmative action uh, uh, on the other side of it. So um, how, how should Asian Americans as a collective view affirmative action? It is for sure a hot button issue. It's um, again, one of these things that um, that is, I think we're seeing generational divides over. Um, I have not kept up as much on what's happening in California as I, as I should. So I'm sure that there may be others who can speak to um, the proposition right now. But I just so sort of following up on what Nancy just said, Asian Americans have benefited from affirmative action. I can point to, I'm sure, the many opportunities that I had in college and in graduate school and simply having access to um, scholarship and opportunities that privileged, that celebrated, that prioritized um, the studies and experiences of, of race in the United States, that has also, that is also part of, of the affirmative action um, legacy. So um, to, to think of this as a policy that Asian Americans have not benefited from, I think can be a little short-sighted. Anybody else, uh, Nancy or I want to add to that specific question about affirmative action? If not, we can uh, keep moving here. Um, well, I, I think we're, we're at around the time where we would go to the Q&A, and I, I think um, uh, there was another topic around um, immigration bans and visa restrictions, which I think all of you have touched on it uh, one way or the other, both historically, uh, how immigration has defined um, uh, sort of xenophobia and um, in some ways divide and conquer. I, I, I really like that analogy. and, and um, uh, Needless to say, there's significant contributions by immigrants to the U.S. Uh, being in the tech sector, I would tell you that is a top issue for us. And and yes, maybe we are favoring the good immigrants here, but um, uh, but but we have just seen the value creation uh, that has happened here due to uh, good immigration policy. Um, uh, so this current fight with um, China about visas, immigration, uh, is. Uh, in, in my mind, fairly detrimental uh, for the national competitiveness of the United States. We, um, I, I was talking to one of my portfolio companies run by an, a Caucasian uh, in the uh, artificial intelligence machine learning realm. And um, he says, you know, Jerry, I just can't get the talent anymore in the United States. I'm going to go to um, Switzerland where their immigration policy for Chinese uh, engineers are much more favorable. So they're going to go hire, you know, Asian-based or Chinese-based uh, uh, engineers in Switzerland, and and um, and this is a startup, so this is not you know big companies that are, so this is already having a, a very detrimental effect. Um, do any of you have any comments about the immigration issue question as it relates to racism in 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 in, in uh, America? Um, I'll get some questions ready, so if, as soon as you guys are done with this little topic, we can go into Q and A. Yeah, I'll 
Sure. Perhaps I could talk about the Chinese American scientists, of which there are about 100,000, and already a 1,000 of them have been asked to uh, quit their jobs uh, because they've been framed as spies, even though they are innocent victims. And uh, they cannot find jobs. They're, they were humiliated in front of their families. Uh, they're ostracized by their friends. And they've had no choice but to look for employment elsewhere. And China has welcomed them. So they've uh, put together a welcome party uh, for about 800 to 1,000 of them. And uh, uh, many of the scientists just don't have the financial uh, backing to uh, contest that and hire lawyers because it can cost anywhere between a hundred to five hundred thousand dollars for a simple case and so uh, they, there are many many a hundred thousand of the, these uh, scientists who have been ostracized and uh, uh, it is unfortunate but the numbers are such that you know th this is all happening because of China's made in China 2025 policy to be the best in science and uh, there are 7 million uh, annually, 7 million science students that are grad STEM students graduating in China. And there are about 500,000 in the US. And so just from sheer numbers, uh, clearly, you know, China will have their own innovators, uh, regardless of uh, whether America feels that Chinese are, are stealing the, the IP. So this to me is actually a very sensitive topic to me. And I, I have such compassion for these scientists whose lives have been destroyed. And I think that, uh, uh, unfortunately, Trump has created a setting for this to happen, uh, along with FBI's Christopher Wray. And we hope that with Biden, I'm hoping that uh, there is positive resolution there, that we may not get a complete reversal, but uh, some kind of resolution that uh, would help these scientists. Great, thank you. I'm looking at the clock, so maybe we ought to go to Q&A and, and maybe I'll um, try to consolidate a couple of questions that have come up. Um, uh, at least two audience members have uh, raised the um, incident of a, a an elderly Chinese woman in Bensonhurst in Brooklyn um, having been attacked and uh, I, I guess set on fire. And um, uh, and there are multiple questions about this uh, because it sort of highlights a, a you know, so sort of the, the incident that, that highlights the, 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 the larger questions. Um, but but I, I would say that there are two questions here. One is, um, uh, you know, the media, um, in general, did not report this as a race incident, um, and then I, I think, in, in, and in turn, sort of law enforcement, um, you know, do they really prosecute this as a as a hate crime? Um, it's fairly well established. At least, you know, you hear a lot more about it in media for African Americans, even anti-Semitism. Um, but I, I think um, this area of media representation of anti-Asian racism, as well as um, uh, the definition of and tracking of, of hate crimes for Asian Americans, um, I think is still fairly, uh, uh, maybe say not well defined as, 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 a, as a proposition. Um, Erica, do you have any perspective uh, first on on, on either the history or the context of uh, Asian American hate. Um, and I'll ask each one of you to talk about, I mean, I think we all have anecdotal ones, um, uh, but, but as I understand it, it is not a, um, it, 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 you know, it, 
a lot of incidents are are you have to you have to be able to qualify them and verify them as 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 race racism incidents. Um, is there a well documented um, set of policies or principles or ways of looking at this uh, yet, or is this still a new new area for for America? Well, unfortunately, there is a long record of racial violence against Asian Americans that we have only, you know, in recent decades unearthed and um, and been able to document and share. So that this again is a is an old problem. But there are phenomenal efforts by grassroots community organizations like Stop API Hate that um, are. Uh, re recording and reporting and creating a, a database. This is so important. Um, but I think that the larger question of, of a community unreporting, but also the lack of media attention um, goes to goes hand in hand with some of the things that we've already talked about this idea that that maybe these are just these are horrific events, but they're exceptions. They're one offs. They're not part of a pattern. It again, affirms this idea that Asian Americans um, have it good in this country and don't routinely, um, uh, are, aren't routinely victimized by, by racial violence. And again, you know, hopefully what's happening today that there is an upside to it that more and more media attention and activism around it can, um, can create sustainable solutions. And, and I echo that, um, Erica. Thank you so much. And you know, you, everyone knows the story of Vincent Chen. Um, and hopefully, in 1982, the Detroit auto worker who was mistaken for a Japanese um, auto worker, and, and, and definitely um, read about it if you don't. And Danny Chen, um, the young the young man who was killed in Afghanistan. You know, this is um, rampant, right? And it's um, ubiquitous. And just anecdotally, I've grown up with racism. You know, born and raised in New York City. I can't even tell you the number of times I've, I've experienced a racist act, you know, just in December before the cold COVID blow up and, and no one upstood, you know? So that was a situation where I was like in a very obvious racist attack moment and there's just not enough upstanding. Um, so I think we, we wonder why that is, um, you know, I'm encouraged by the numbers, you know, so much of the Asian American population is in California, in New York, in, you know, in, 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 in Illinois, in Chicago, in those areas where the, you know, discrimination led a lot of Chinese American communities at least to sort of congregate in denser um, neighborhoods. Uh, but Chinese Americans only make up 1.5% of the population. Um, but that's also because the census is inaccurately um, taken. So encourage everyone to fill out the census for, um, in, in, in a big way. But also one thing you may have noticed is the bylines. I see a lot more Asian American names in the bylines. And I think that that's really, really interesting. And you may have also seen the trend that a lot of at least Chinese names are sticking with their pinging pronunciation, right? Mm -hmm. So they're not changing their names to Nancy or Erica, um, but they're, or Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that's an interesting shift in our understanding of our own identity, um, that they're proud. And I just remember the Columbia students um, a few years ago had that awful incident where the, all their names or Chinese names are knocked off their dorm room windows. And they did something so amazingly proactive. They made a video and said, you know, my name is Yan Anxing and that means Southern fragrance. You know, my name is, you know, that way because I'm considered, you know, someone who's going to be big and strong. And that type of positive reaction 
I, every time I watch that video, and I won't tell you, I definitely clicked up on that, on that feed, makes, brings me to tears. Because we need to be more thoughtful and creative about creating this accessibility and educating people and, 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 and not being more Americanness. I kind of don't agree with that, but being ourselves and owning our identity to deal with some of this racism. But, you know, Victor, who I, I hear you, the pain of that 89-year-old woman, I, I, you know, the anger, the anger is there, right? Let's just acknowledge the anger is real. I am angry. And we need to use and channel that angry to better educate, to educate others, to change a narrative and to own our own identity and to own this country in the way that we should. Wonderful. Uh, turning to a question from the audience, um, and I think is a good one. Please address the question of building solidarity in two contexts. First, among Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, Vietnamese Americans, Hmongs, Indians, you know, put the Asian AAPI prefix uh, in front of American. Uh, and, and building solidarity for that. And second, between Asian Americans and uh, the underrepresented minorities of African Americans and Hispanic Americans. Well, I, I always, uh, one of the reasons why I started SubChina is that I want to be inclusive. I'm a very inclusive person. And uh, we need platforms, institutions that Nancy was talking about before, organizations like National Committee to bring together voices and to be able to host events and uh, hear everybody's voices. So building solidarity, in order to build solidarity, you need to be able to hear everybody's thoughts, voices, and to have a platform by which we can convene. So I hope that uh, we can follow up, whether it's China or National Committee, maybe Jerry, you want to lead this effort to see how we can build solidarity, not amongst Asians, but also other minorities as well. It's very important to be able to do that because only collectively uh, can we create collective thoughts and to be able to move forward. So I, I, I strongly support that. I mean, you know, an anecdote, you know, a lot of Asian Americans I've talked to and my friends and people I've grown up with, you know, they were, I had an interesting conversation the other day and it was a Korean American woman, a good friend. She said, you know what? I really struggle with Black Lives Matter because, you know, my parents were both owned a deli you know, we worked really hard and I got into Cornell, my sister got into Cornell and we've done really well. And this sort of like, we made it. And then she's like, and for some reason, I just realized that I did not have the systemic barriers that black people have in this country and 400 years of oppression is real, right? That's, it seems very obvious as I share it, but it is so true. Um, so black lives matter, black lives matter. And in my mind, there's no sort of playing that down or suggesting it's similar. Black Lives Matter, 400 years of oppression, and we know that it's real. And we know it in every day of our walking lives that there is damage there and there are wounds there that are gonna take years of systemic change. And I am 100% for that because until that happens, it, I mean, we can do things simultaneously, but I think it, it, it you know, as an institution, we put a letter out that said Black Lives Matter. We didn't want to talk about anything about MOCA at that. We just need to say Black Lives Matter. And this is something fundamental to the infrastructure of this country, um, you know, breaking down the fallacious existence that we have and just making it right as much as we can. And I think that's all of us living, breathing people now that it is our responsibility to do that. And I don't want to just leave it to the next gen, next gen, next gen. I think we've got to do things now. Mm -hmm. I was just in uh, the Berkshires two weekends ago where I met my daughter and there's the town of Lee 
and also it's where's Williams College is. And the suburb is not your typical suburb where their houses are right next to each other. They're pretty spread apart, but at every home, they have a little plaque. You've seen um, signs that say home for sale, that kind of plaque that's kind of flimsy but uh, waterproof that said Black Lives Matter in front of every house. And I had this fantasy, why can't we have a sign just like that that says Yellow Lives Matter or Asian Lives Matter? And I was dreaming about it. I said, you know, this, this is so important. We are being attacked now. I mean, I have so many friends who are physically attacked and uh, verbally attacked. And nobody comes to stop us or to help us. And I'm saying if, if we stood up and had that kind of placard that every suburb house and everybody t owns it and says, we want to help Asians. We want to help Blacks. You know, uh, well, I was appalled when I found out that Fortune 500 companies would pay anywhere between 16 to, 60 to $200,000, every company, I, I think that's the minimum, to support CSR, corporate social responsibility, to support ESG, environmental, social, and governance. They care about women empowerment. They care about being inclusive. And if they do that, why is it that we don't, we're not part of that conversation? So I, I really hope we can move the needle and make a difference. Thank you. Um, I, I would just say that, uh, you know, growing up in, the, in America, I, I feel like there are dozens of Asian American um, nonprofit organizations. A lot of them uh, are advocates uh, advocates for Asian Americans of all types. And so this is not so, uh, this is not to say there isn't already great people doing great work. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I do think on the issue of solidarity, we have not defined Asian to be the front and center. I think we've defined uh, you know immigration and sort of sometimes some legal defense, uh, usually around citizenship. Um, and I'm overgeneralizing, and this is not my area, but I do feel like if we can uh, take this issue of race um, as been defined or, or discussed here in, by this great panel and really make that sort of our collective number one agenda. First of all, this has to be bi bipartisan. I, I, I probably know where everybody comes out politically on this, but, um, but when, when, when you are afraid of you walking your house or if you're afraid to go to somewhere because you're Asian, um, uh, by the way, this is what African Americans have felt for generations, right? I mean, to tell your kids how to walk in, in streets is uh, is something that I, I don't think we would ever have to deal with. So I, I agree with the 400 year comment. But you know, the solidarity usually comes with a, a common cause, and I think um, this could be our uh, Asian community's wake up call to 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 build solidarity around race, um, uh, and um, and, and it's gonna take many, many shoulders and it's gonna take all the organizations that um, have been doing great work for decades. Um, uh, but, but there may need to be a shift and maybe kind of a moment like the, the George Floyd moment that is gonna redefine, I think, um, the way we think about African-American race relations in the US. Um, I, I think we need to start building that groundwork for, for Asian Americans. So, um, so thank you for that question. Um, I, I think with uh, uh, the moderator's um, privilege, if I may just ask each panelist a final question, um, we can keep it a couple minutes or even a very shorter if you want. Um, uh, and it's really looking for the future and call to action. I think Anla, you already talked about some, but um, 
but if you guys were to step back and say, look, 10, 20, 50 years from now, um, uh, we, we've already heard from America that history tends to repeat itself. Um, you know, what do we need to do now? It, you know, maybe in the context of the next three months, what do we need to do for the next five years or the decade or two decades and when we think about intergenerational um, in order to either define a milestone or, or you know, how do we define success in this case? Um, Erica, I'll start with you and then we'll go to Anla and Nancy. How, what's the call to action? How do we make, how do we take something and go forward? Right. Well, first of all, I think that what so many of us on this panel have already identified um, are signs of hope. Nancy talked about the growing numbers of Asian American reporters who are on the streets reporting. Jerry, you mentioned the grassroots organizations that have been doing phenomenal work for decades. We also have a number of Asian Pacific American politicians that we didn't, that my parents' generation certainly didn't, didn't have. So there are, um, you know, phenomenal um, transformations that have already happened that we and the generations after us can build upon. For the immediate future, I'm going to get political. Uh, we need absolutely new leadership in the White House, not only in terms of, uh, not, not only in terms of, of establishing some sort of, of um, normalcy in, and, and function to our response to the public health crisis, but also uh, in terms of taking racism seriously and not flaming and flaming white nationalism and white supremacy as well as dialing back and um, putting out the fire on this rising US-China relation. So that is a very immediate and very tangible thing that voters can, can do in November. But again, the hard work has to continue. And I hope that when we're talking about Asian Americans and their role in social justice, we have to be doing it not on our own, we have to be doing it alongside allies. We can't just be for yellow lives. <laughs> we can't just be making a fuss when our community is being attacked. We have to be out there contributing as allies with other communities. Um, so only together, I think we can move forward. Very, very well said. Ella? Yes, I completely agree with Erica, so I will second everything she said. But I also would like to add that uh, in order for us to uh, make any impact, we need to unite. So as Jerry said earlier, there are many, many organizations, including MOCA and many others, who have already done a lot of great work. So my recommendation is that we need to bring all these various organizations collectively together and create a platform and have a discussion and then make a metric. We have to say, what is it that we want? Where do we want to go from here to there? And write, write out all the issues that we would like to, to achieve, to change, and how do we get there? And we have to sort of say, what are the metrics that would say we have achieved success? 
So how do we educate the students? How do we educate the teachers who educate the students? How do we get influencers, Chinese influencers, who can say things that people can repeat over and over again? You know, I, as I mentioned, I have six pages of all these tweets that Mike Pompeo, Peter Navarro, Trump have said over and over again about, I mean, I can go on and on. The cause of death is the Chinese virus. You know, I mean, this, this goes on and on. It's, it's, it's quite, if I may be blunt, very disgusting. You know, Trump says, I'm more and more angry at China. Or um, here's another one. Um, China is killing our jobs and now our people. I mean, we need influencers to say the opposite. And what great things Chinese and Asians have done to the American community. So we, I would love to have these influencers do that. And then we provide the language to other students who are asked to join this kind of hate thinking, to role play in classrooms and at homes, to, to show that this is not right. We must be upstanders and not bystanders, to be able to stand up and say, I will not be part of these hate crime. I will, I'm not going to join that group, but to be able to independent and stand up and understand why they won't. So all these things need to put in place. So these are some of the metrics that I would say this is successful. But uh, I don't mean to be cynical, but racism is not going to go away. It's going to keep coming back. We're at a very bad patch now. Um, I have someone who's very serious, senior individual in corporate life who said this will go on for 10 years. I don't know how he came up with that prediction, but we cannot just sit here. We have to do something. And so I think all of you who joined us today, you're here because you care. So I hope that each of you can contribute in your own way. Thank you. Also very well said, thank you. Nancy, you get the last word. <laughs> I try to be succinct. Um, thank you for this opportunity. You know, we don't take it lightly and I appreciate the National Committee hosting this, especially Eric, Erica Quack, who saw this as a priority. Um, I think we need to do three things. One is as individuals, we need to search and understand who we are. We need to search and understand our American, Asian American identity. We need to call it our American identity, our Asian ancestral American identity. And in some ways we need to disentangle ourselves from what's happening in China and the rest of Asia. Because just because we have that ancestry doesn't necessarily mean that we understand cross-strait relations. In fact, we might be very biased on something like that. And I think that that's something that we need to make sure that we have objectivity. Under Suggesting, if you haven't studied it like Erica has um, on these sort of uh, topics, you can't suggest that you actually have an expertise in it. It's almost like saying you know how to do Kung Fu just because you're Chinese, you have Chinese ancestry, right? Why would I, you know, why would someone necessarily know about cross-strait relationships? Why would I necessarily know about Kung Fu? Not necessarily. The second thing I'd say is BLM matters. Black lives matter. And you know what? If we get that right, and if we invest in that as much as we possibly can with a lot of energy, we will benefit. Asian Americans will benefit. We are benefiting from them, from black lives from 1965, from the civil rights movement, from earlier before then, from when we were building the railroads, we have benefited from black lives. And I can't underscore that enough, that if we can be allied with that movement, we will be in a better place. And I am 100% convinced of that. And then lastly, philanthropy. I think philanthropy is so important here. If you look at the numbers around Asian American philanthropy, it's just not, it's subpar. And I think you saw Ford and Mellon announced recently that they're committing $1.7 billion on borrowed money to help support nonprofit organizations so that they can help build, build civil society. We need that. 
So if you're able to be a philanthropist, and I believe truly everyone can be a philanthropist, we can help those who are trying to make change at nonprofits in other ways through their corporate endeavors, whatever it is, but make time for it. And if you can't make time for it, give to it because that's the only way civil society will change. That's what nonprofits are about. They're about mission-driven work. So we need to commit to philanthropy. Do the 10% out of your, your, you know, whatever income level you have, it's going to make a difference in your life and in the life of your children. Well, very powerful and thank you. I, I totally agree and, and I think um, ultimately it's gonna take all of us and it's gonna take leadership. So those of you out there um, who, uh, are passionate about this, we uh, will need leaders um, from all generations to emerge and speak on this issue. Uh, we didn't get into the media, um, uh, you know, Asian Americans don't have our own media. Um, and, uh, and this is something that um, uh, to, to stand up against incidents, um, uh, we don't have a way to fight back like other uh, ethnicities. And, 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 and um, we have MOCA, but we don't have a museum on the mall, uh, National Museum for AAPI. So uh, we have a long ways to go. Um, but I want to thank all my panelists. Um, you guys are awesome. Uh, you're, you're my heroes. Um, and I hope this conversation just to start. And um, Erica, I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Jerry, Nancy, Erica, and Anla for spending time with us this afternoon to share with us your insights and experiences. A big thank you also to the audience for tuning into this program. Um, before we go, I would like to share two things. As has been emphasized throughout this program, we need to have a follow-up to this conversation, um, a call to action with actionable items. Um, we would like to hear from the audience, so please send your stories, your experiences, your suggestions for the committee to the email address in the chat, which will be sent shortly if it hasn't been already. In addition to that, we believe that the sharing of resources on racism is vital. So we will be launching a webpage focused on anti-racism with resources, articles, and short interviews that, will, that we hope can act as a tool to tackle these issues. So again, thank you so much to all the panelists and thank you all for tuning in. Take care, everybody. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.